Well, we are living in troubled times. We are a politically divided nation. We are a nation that is being attacked internally. We are all still mourning and thinking about the the attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And everywhere you see hostility and dangers. And as a person trying to live as a, a follower of Christ, to be a righteous person... You're, you're left really in this day and age with the, the difficulty of saying, how do I do that, God? How do I live righteously before you? How do I, how do I live a life that is pleasing unto you? It's such a, a weird, confusing, busy time. We're inundated with communication and news, and much of it is bad or at least divisive. And how does the righteous woman, the righteous man, live in such a time and such a place. Well, you may think that this is uniquely the place we're in uh, and that it's, we've never faced anything like this before, but, but if you really think about it, you know that's not true. And it's interesting to me because the, when I first saw the lesson for uh, this week and realized that we were looking at the, the Shema, the, the Hero Israel, the famous Deuteronomy 6 passage, I began to do a little more research into, into Deuteronomy and the, the purpose of this book. And, and Moses is writing to Israel at the end of his life. He's about to, to let them go into the promised land. But you remember that Moses is forbidden from going in where the people will go. And though it's a land with milk and honey, promised to be, you know, prosperous, a good place, there's also lots of hostilities there. God has judged the nations that dwell and Palestine, and he's going to drive them out. He's going to use the children of Israel to drive them out. But it's not going to be easy. There's going to be lots and lots of obstacles to overcome. Jericho being that fortified city right along the, the, right along the, the river that they're going to have to cross over the Jordan and face immediately. Lots of temptations as well. Lots of false gods. Lots of temptations to put their trust in other things. And so... In a lot of ways, Moses is talking to Israel and its echoes come forward to us and we again find ourselves at the precipice of entering into something that maybe seem overwhelmingly. And yet, Dallas Willard says, and I believe him, that this world is a perfectly safe place for you and I to be. Well, how can that be possible? This world is a perfectly safe place. The children of Israel were perfectly safe to go into this hostile world and face all that they were going to face. And even though Moses is telling them all the things they're doing, he also reminds them that they're going to fail. They're going to, they're going to fall subject to these, these idols and idol worshipers and be drawn away and tempted to all sorts of things. But, but, but Moses says, here, here is what, here's my advice to you. Here is what God has told me to say to you. And we have this passage here from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 5, you need to know, is, is the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's a restating of Exodus 20 when the commandments were given to Moses at first. So here's the restatement of them in Deuteronomy 5. And then right after that, right in Deuteronomy 6, we get, we get the Shema, which is the Hear, O Israel portion of the verses. And, and what, what Moses says to the people is three things. He says, 
first of all, if you're going to face this hostile place and not be completely destroyed, you're going to have to remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. There is but one God. He is the one who has rescued you from Egypt. He's the one that's brought you through all of your troubles. He alone can save, and he alone loves and cares for you. God is one. Worship him. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus says that he's the son of God, and that's somehow a problem. for Because remember what Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He is affirming the Shema when he says that. There is one God, three persons, one God. Trinity, hear my sermon last Trinity Sunday. We'll go on from there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Trust the one true God. You're going to be tempted to all sorts of things, to build your life on them. Those things will not sustain. They will not bring peace to your heart. They will not bring true life. They are Sandy ground, to quote Jesus. They're not the rock. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, Moses goes on to say, we are to put our full trust. We are to be in covenant love. Two weeks ago, we married a young couple, Blair and Holden, and we said, be true to each other until you are parted by death. It's covenant love. It's more than just, oh, I really love you. It's I'm with you, thick or thin, rich or poor, till death do us part. That is the covenant love that God calls his people to have with him. Love God with the totality of your being. Don't parse out what does it mean, mind and soul. And that's that's it's it what what God is getting at is love him with everything. He's the only one who can handle our love. We will love something, ultimately. We will give ourselves to things. We are worshipers by nature. But only God is worthy of our worship. And only he saves us and brings life. So one God, Moses says, love the Lord your God. Well, why is it that God demands love? Is he he an angry father that's saying, you will love me, kids? No, he's he's a love that's demonstrated his love towards his children towards the children of Israel, and he says, as I have loved you, respond with love towards me. As I have been a covenant-keeping God with you, be a covenant-keeping people with me. Trust in me. Though the days may be hard. So one God, love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then thirdly, internalize my commandments. Internalize the law that I am giving you. Moses says at the end of the verses, he says, we must teach these things to our children and to our children's children. They are not intuitive. The ways of God are not intuitive. As a matter of fact, just the opposite is is true. By nature, our children and our children's children will go another way. They will grab hold of other gods and other idols and they will pursue things and they will worship those things and they will forget the Lord your God Teach them, Moses says, to your children and to your grandchildren. Teach them when you're standing and walking and when you're sitting and when you're lying down. Teach them in the formal times and in the informal times. Internalize these things lest the people forget. 
and keep them before you. Ancient Israelites would actually, the men would actually place little, 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 little things that they would put on their foreheads. They would actually have the word of God in little boxes and they would tie them to the forehead. Some, some Hasidic Jews today, if you go to certain places in the United States like New York City, you'll see Hasidic Jews with, with the, the word of God between, literally between their eyes and on the f- door faces of their houses because they understood that, that the Shema means that we have to keep God's word before us or we will lose it. We'll forget God's ways and we'll be scattered. And that's what Moses says. He says, if you, if you turn away, you're going to be scattered to the nations. You're not going to stay long in this land flowing with milk and honey. Now, every good Jew knew these things. This is the Shema. This is the, the basis. This is, this, we have to keep this before us, keep God's commands before us, teach them to our children and our grandchildren, love God with our heart, make sure that he is, he is the, the, the focus of our worship, and remember that there is only one God. Though things may look scary and as if there are other powers that compete with him that we should give ourselves to, trust in the Lord. That is how a man or a woman will stay righteous in a foreign land, in a hard land, even in a promised land that faces obstacles and difficulty. But here's the problem. Easier said than done. So you turn to Mark 12 and you fast forward and here's a young scribe, a clergyman, a scholar, who is an Israelite, who is seeking to live out the Shema. And he comes to Jesus because he sees that Jesus had great success in dealing with the Sadducees. In the previous chapter, Jesus is dealing with the, the, the issue of resurrection and life after death and marriage and marriage in heaven and all kind of stuff. And it's profound. I encourage you to go back and read the end of chapter 11 to see what, what Jesus says there. But it impresses the scribe. And he comes and he says to Jesus, Teacher, What is the most important commandment? I don't know what his motivation was. You know, intellectual people like to, you know, ask provocative questions. We don't know exactly what his reasoning is. Maybe he sincerely wants to know what the greatest commandment is. Or maybe he's seeking to live out this righteous life under the Shema, and he wants to know insight but doesn't have the... The, the guts to come right out and say it. I don't, I don't know. We don't, we're not told that. But he asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And how does Jesus respond? He responds with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus knows that that's the, the basis by which Moses has, has laid out the law before the people of Israel. And he knows that this young man knows that. And then he does something incredible. He links that command with the second. This is part of our liturgy every week. The second command, which is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. Which comes right out of Leviticus 19.18. But what Jesus does in that moment is he, he links those two. He says it's impossible to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus, you're not making it any easier for us. 
We were having enough trouble with the Shema, and now you've added on this Leviticus passage. Now, you know people that try to love their neighbor as themselves really, really well, but they don't love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matter of fact, sometimes they even deny God. And you know people that love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they don't really love their neighbor at all. You know people like that. There's some political ramifications if you think about it, but I'm going to let you draw those conclusions for yourself. But, but what does Jesus do? He says it's impossible to love God without loving your neighbor. It's impossible to love your neighbor without loving God. He links them to. He blows the scribe's mind, you know. And to the, to the point that the scribe, I love this, the scribe gives Jesus an A+. Plus. Well said, teacher. Really good job. You got it. And he gives this interpretation of, you know, that there is one God, which we just talked about, and that we're to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves, and that that's greater than all the sacrifices and the burnt offerings. And, and he kind of wraps it up and says, yes, it, it all, it's about loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and what Jesus does, you know, he, he really has encapsulated all ten of the commandments, hasn't he? The first four commandments, dealing with idolatry and, and no, no graven images and keeping the Sabbath day holy and and if Whitey Hogan was here, he'd say, those are the vertical commandments. And then the 6 through, through 10, right? Loving, honoring parents all the way through not coveting is the horizontal. And Whitey would say, this is the cross. It's a great way of thinking about the commandments and keeping them straight in your mind and your heart. Jesus has laid out the summary of all the commandments, which is the reason why we use it in our liturgy when we don't do the, the Decalogue. We, we use Jesus' summary. But here's the thing. It's easier to say it than do it. And perhaps this young scribe is here because he knows he's not capable of keeping the law. Because what does Jesus say? Well done. Keep on doing what you're doing. No, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I know some things about being not far from the kingdom of God. I was, I was that young scribe at 15 when I became a Christian, trying to be a righteous person in, a, in an unrighteous world, the 70s. It was an unrighteous time, let me tell you. but I was near the kingdom of God. Some of you may be near the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom of God. Many of you know what it's like to be near the kingdom and to have crossed into the kingdom. Last week, Bob talked about the blind Bartimaeus coming along the road and crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and, and of course, that's a reference to the fact that, that this, this blind man recognizes that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah, even though all these sighted people are oblivious to it. And he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the king, King Jesus, receives Bartimaeus into his kingdom. He becomes his follower. Christ is the king, it's his kingdom. He's the door, he's the way into this life that God offers. The scribe, Jesus says, is near the kingdom. 
of God. We've known some people who we've reached out through our Alpha class and they've, they've got involved and they've begun to get stirred up by the things of God and got involved with doing youth ministry or outreach and have gone on retreats and they've been a part of things. But then they fall away because they were near the kingdom, but they weren't in the kingdom. Do you know that this is the life verse of John Wesley? Do you know the story of John Wesley? We just had All Saints Day. It's a, he's a saint of the church. Do you know about John Wesley? He was born in 1703. He was born the 15th of 19 children to his mother Suzanne and his father Samuel. Suzanne Wesley is a, was a, an incredible woman. She had 19 children. She found time in her weekly schedule to spend quality time with all 19 children. If you want to know where John Wesley got his gift of administration from, it was from his mother. I mean, that just makes me tired to think about 19 children and quality time with each of them. Wesley grew up. He, he was the son of an Anglican priest, and so like his father, he went into... He went to seminary, he went to Oxford, he, began to, he was a teacher, he began to teach Greek and logic, and he began to be involved in what they called the Holy Club at Oxford. And he would go and fast twice a week, and he would care for the poor, and he would go to the prisons, and he, would, he, would, he just spent an hour each morning in prayer seeking to be a righteous man in an unrighteous world. Now, you, you think of England as Victorian England, but the England that Wesley was born in was more like Palestine before, the, before Israel entered in. It was a place of great abuse, uh, addictions. The men were so drunk on whiskey that they drank up all their money and didn't care for their families. Wesley, once he became converted, later on would, would teach manners to the people because they didn't have any. It was an uncivilized place. It was a hostile world. And Wesley was seeking to be a, a, a righteous man. He was seeking to live out the Shema, to, to live out, to love God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbors himself. He even volunteered in his 30s to go to a pagan place, Georgia. That was a joke. And to try to minister to the American Indians living in and around the area of Savannah, Georgia. But it was a complete failure. And Wesley sailed back home, completely discouraged. On their way, if you don't know the story, let me remind you, a bad storm came up, and the whole ship thought that it was going to be killed. They thought they were going to perish. And Wesley found himself in the presence of some Moravian Christians. These are German Christians who exemplified a peace and a trust in God that Wesley knew he did not have. And it pierced through all of his religious efforts, all of the work he had done to try to be a righteous man in an unrighteous world. And he comes back to England and he, he finds this verse. 
he's kind of reading his Bible and he comes across, you are not far from the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit uses it to pierce Wesley's heart. And he goes to Altersgate and he hears a group of Christians reading the preface of Luther's commentary to the Romans. And he gets the gospel for the first time. How is it that we can live the Shema? How is it that we can love our neighbors ourselves? In and of ourselves, it's, it's impossible. But I got to tell you, when I was reading through uh, the, the story of Wesley, I, I, I started reading through all the things he did. I thought, man, he's, okay, I need to start spending an hour and day in prayer. And, and I, did, I need to do more visits to the prison with Fred. And, and then I, I realized that, oh, wait a minute, this was before Wesley became a Christian. We can't do it. We're living in a hostile world. We're living in a, a time of divisiveness and hostility and violence and confusion, and it's hard to know way. But the temptation is to think that there are other things that we must do first in order to live in this world. And that is to miss the gospel, friends. Just as I fear this young scribe had missed and just as John Wesley had missed until the day that he was converted. I love what, um, left my hymnal, I love what his brother Charles wrote in the great hymn, and David, I'm sorry, I just found this this morning, but love divine, all love excelling. David would like, I would have played that if you'd have said it. But listen to the second verse, it captures it captures this, what I'm trying to preach. Breathe, O oh, breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away our bent on sinning. Alpha and omega be. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. I don't know if Charles wrote that after John's conversion or before, but I can tell you it speaks to the hope of the gospel. How can this world be a perfectly safe place for us to be? Only in Jesus Christ. Jesus was offering himself the mercy of God. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to... I'm going to read you one more thing just because it's, it's just so helpful for me and hopefully for you. Right before Moses gives the Shema, right before he, he restates the commandments, he says to the children of Israel, he says, when, you're fa- when you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, So as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. And you will not live long in it. It will be utterly destroyed. It's not saying God's going to judge you. This is what's going to happen. If you you turn to these other things, if you place your trust in them, that's what's going to happen. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nation where the Lord has driven you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone. 
Friends, we live in a place where we are made to worship wood and stone. You will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. You want to know why life's so frustrating? Because you're forced to serve gods of wood and stone. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart, with all your soul. And when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. And he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You see, right there in Deuteronomy, is the seed of God's mercy. And just as Christ comes to that young scribe and just as he comes by his spirit to John Wesley, so he comes to us and he says, do not be afraid. I am the true God. But you can't do this on your own. You must trust my gospel. How do we live a righteous life in an unholy place? First of all, we hold tight to the gospel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And since it's All Saints Day, I hope you're staying with me. Sorry, but I just got to say this. I just, I feel like there's a, we are in such a time where it's so easy for us, even as Christians, to become so discouraged that we just hunker down and we try to survive. And Christ is calling us to hold firm to the gospel and to be people of hope and to know that with Christ in this world, we can be safe in Christ. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, and then I'm done. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, we are not the first to come this way. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. How do we love God, heart, soul, mind and strength? We allow the spirit of Christ that is living in us to give us strength. How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? We trust the Holy Spirit that God has given us to direct us because Christ who loved us and died for us is with us. Amen.